This morning we reach the end of this summer series, message number 10. We started in June and we wrap up today. And next week we will start a new season uh, the way we've been starting September for the last nine years, praise God, with three grace stories, three real life, authentic testimonies of God's goodness in the lives of people just like you and me sitting in this sanctuary. Uh, three grace stories starting on September 11th. Uh, if you're able to, would you stand with me as I read the scripture? Philippians 4, starting in verse 10, listen carefully. These are God's words. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the privilege it is to walk through a book of the Bible and to look closely, deeply at the wonder of who you are and the wonder of how you have acted in history on behalf of sinners like us. How deep the Father's love, how vast beyond all measure, indeed. Speak to us freshly by your Spirit yet again, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to spend the bulk of our time uh, just on one heading and then wrap up with the second. Uh, we'll, we'll spend the most of our time talking about the secret of being content. We call this the, the letter of joy, and Paul has one more reason to express his joy, starting in verse 10. He is so encouraged uh, about the Philippians' concern for him and their support of his ministry. But as nice as the gift is, Paul's joy goes far deeper. You know what that's like if you've ever received a gift and the thing you've gotten is nice. You appreciate it. Maybe, maybe it's your aesthetic. It'll, it'll look nice in your kitchen, or, or it's something that you would wear. Um, you can use it. But the richer uh, reason for your thankfulness is knowing that this friend thought of you. They considered your uniqueness, your tastes, your likes, maybe something of your shared story. And so um, Paul rejoices um, not over the gift, that's nice, 
But because the gift represents the real unity in the gospel that they have shared from the moment that the Philippian people met Jesus through Paul's ministry. And Paul rejoices over the Philippians' trust in the Lord, evidenced by this generosity, because this is not a church that gave out of wealth. This is a church that gave out of actually extreme need. We don't have time to get to 2 Corinthians 8, but there's a reference to the Macedonian churches led by the church at Philippi, we could imagine, we could assume. Uh, then Paul gets into this, the heart of the passage, uh, verses 11 through 13. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That last verse I underlined uh, is always going to be a striking verse to me. Maybe it is to you as well, because um, it brings me back visually, uh, viscerally, to the first time I ever uh, walked into a Christian bookstore. Do you remember those um, dinosaurs? They don't exist anymore, I don't think. I was a, a brand new believer in Jesus, 18 or 19 years old, um, and it was like entering a whole new world. Um, there are books about Jesus. There, there are things with sayings from the Bible. And I, I had just begun to read the Bible and um, found this little section with these um, business card size, uh, almost mini bumper stickers with Bible verses. And I grabbed a handful. They were, they were affordable for a college kid. And I, gra- I, I bought a whole bunch. And one of them was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Who, who wouldn't want that motivational message? What college kid doesn't need that kind of, you know, um, um, encouragement, you know, that, that kind of support and affirmation? It, it, it can sound like the power of positive thinking, and it can be misleading spiritually if the emphasis is wrongly placed on the first part. I can do all things. You know, um, it, it, it can sound like this sort of independent streak. I don't need anybody. But the really impressive truth is in the second part. Not only that um, Christ has strength, but that he would choose to give it to me. Paul's not putting on this self-sufficient independent image. I'm good. I don't need anybody fine just the way I am. God gives me everything I need, you know, don't need your help. He's not saying that. He's, he's actually saying this, I am not needy because I am utterly dependent. I'm not needy because I'm utterly dependent. It, it might sound strange to your ears, but realize that this reality is at the heart of biblical Christianity. Here's, here's what Paul's getting at. Um, I don't have to beg for help and then get mad at you if you're not generous with me because I'm utterly dependent on the Lord and he supplies my need. In fact, he is my satisfaction, God himself. I'm not needy because I'm utterly dependent. It's a paradox, but it's at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Biblical Christians say this, something like this. I have nothing to offer God in my sin. I am empty. 
But through faith in Jesus, the king of all kings graciously chooses to fill me up to overflowing. That kind of rock-solid security frees Paul to boldly ask for help, to appreciate it when it's given, but if it's not, to still trust the Lord, that God will provide even if it means, as Paul put it in chapter 1, verse 23, to be home, to, to, to depart and to be with Christ, to literally die, which is better by far. God will provide for me. He is my satisfaction, even if the way he provides is to bring me into glory. It's incredibly freeing, this promise of resurrection, because uh, there is no enemy that could withstand the power of life over death. Another reason um, verse 13 isn't some all-purpose Christian slogan is that all this or all things in different translations, they can't possibly mean anything. I can do anything through him who strengthens me. It wouldn't make sense for Paul to all of a sudden come out with, you know, nothing's impossible for me, by the way. You know, it's like, where'd that come from? Paul's apostleship is getting to his head. You know, nothing, I can do all things. It's not what he means. I can accomplish anything I put my mind to. It's sort of this, you know, um, pull up your bootstraps, um, mailroom to CEO, classic American kind of story. That's not what Paul is saying. The all, I can do all things, is the same Greek word that shows up in the previous verse 12 when Paul says that he has learned the secret of being content in any, same word, in every situation. Very next thought, verse 13, I can do any of this, any things through him who gives me strength. The any refers to being well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. Any and every situation, um, it doesn't matter whether I have much or have little, I have contentment. I can do, I can handle all of those kinds of circumstances, high or low in life, uh, and either give thanks to God for providing in the moment or trust that Jesus will strengthen me to endure until he provides for me eventually, even if it means bringing me home to be with him, which is better by far. How can you experience contentment like this? Here's the irony. Usually, contentment does not come when you get whatever your heart desires. Instead, usually contentment, biblically speaking, real contentment, comes when you've experienced need. Sometimes when God or a parent says no to you. Cedar and I have um, several times, many times, shared this kind of uh, thought with um, parents of young children in conversation about biblical parenting. Um, and, and here's what we've consistently observed. This is not the rule of the, of the land. This, this isn't the case in every situation. But we've consistently observed this. And we think this is largely true. That the most discontent children, ironically are the ones who are used to getting what they want. The most discontent children, ironically, 
are usually the ones who are used to getting what they want. The ones who are not disciplined. The ones who don't hear no often enough. They're usually less content than children whose parents consistently and lovingly discipline. Who regularly say no, not just to say no, not because they're miserly and they're not generous and they're, they're scrooges, but because to say yes to a, a little heart that is sinful like all of us, that wants what it wants and lusts for more than what God would intend and desire for that child to have in thriving, parents need to regularly say no. The, the kids who are less content are, are less content than children whose parents don't negotiate with their kids every dinner time and every bedtime. Why would this be, this pattern, if it's largely true? Because the, the kids who experience some lack because of a no answer, they learn to trust loving authority that knows what is best for them, that has their best in mind, and they develop an appreciation for grace, for gifts, a gratitude. When they don't get whatever they want, ice cream every time you're out, their own bag of popcorn instead of sharing with the sibling, whining without correction, getting a treat or a toy every visit to the store, staying up late with a series of expertly played excuses in series like a, a hand of cards at the table, when the little self's sovereign claims are not appeased, he or she, the child of lovingly disciplining, firm parents who are always weighing the spiritual good of the child, he or she doesn't waste time crying over what's not instantly provided. That child asks and often accepts the answer and moves on. Content. You don't always get what you want in life. It's a pretty important lesson to learn early on. But the spoiled child is used to being the center of the universe. And kings and queens get what they want. Do they not? And when the adult servants in the household don't deliver, the tantrum will teach them to, to, to disobey the king and queen. These kids have a sense of entitlement. You, O oh parent, would dare to defy the sovereign will of my three-year-old self? You would deny me the dreams of a seven-year-old to have two massive scoops of ice cream on that chocolate-dipped waffle cone on that counter? How dare you? The content child asks and um, is thrilled with a kid cone with one scoop to get home to bed on time. Parents, whatever the situation may be, lovingly and consistently and firmly exercising your God-given authority over your children. You only have them so long. It is, it, it's not optional. It is so critical to discipling your kids to respect God's ultimate authority and to rest content in what he chooses to wisely and lovingly and satisfyingly provide. Underneath Paul's striking statement here is a deep awareness that as a sinner, he does not deserve anything. Do you see the link to a, a child's 
selfish desires that expects. And a godly man who is an example to every follower of Jesus who doesn't expect anything because he was an enemy of God. But God, in his mercy, made him alive with Christ, Ephesians 2. Disciplining your children, which is a key part of discipling your children, teaches them to rest in God's loving authority. Paul knows he doesn't deserve anything because of his sin. But as a son, by faith in Jesus the Son, Paul trusts the will of the Father to provide what his children need. But more, as I said earlier, that he himself is what his children need. More of God, more of his presence. Paul's not looking for stuff at just the right time to make his life easier. You know, look, can't you provide for me so I can do God's work? He doesn't say that. He's not asking for that kind. He is resting in biblical contentment in who God is, knowing that in plenty or in want, he can do all things through him who strengthens him. If you want contentment, more will not bring it to you. More of God will. There is no contentment if you don't Devote yourself to time in the word of God and in prayer, availing yourself of the treasure of who God is revealed to us in scripture. There's no other way. There's another biblical practice that also ironically cultivates contentment. It's fasting. It's going without food for a certain amount of time, whether it's one meal or or 24 hours, however long you choose. Here's what typically happens, though. When it's time, um, when it's barely 12 minutes past the meal that you're deciding to skip, you can't think straight. Your, your stomach starts growling, right? You're in pain. You're cursing the name of, of, of the pastor who brought this up and, and, and reminded you that this is a biblical practice. And... Um, and you ask, what's the point of this spiritual discipline? How, how's this good for me? The good is not to simply to deprive you. The good is not simply to introduce discomfort and suffering. There's no inherent good in that, in and of itself. The good is to remind you very viscerally that you are a dependent creature. That you think about food way too much. It's too important. <laughs> I, know, I know how that is, trust me. Um, and when you make something good that God designed, food for the body to sustain, it's good. When you make something good, too important, and it approaches ultimate on the scale, that's what the Bible calls idolatry. It's an idol. You give worth to it more than God intends it to have, and it can become a god substitute. That's a problem. Fasting exposes it like that without fail every time. You are a dependent creature. You don't need that food for your eternal flourishing. You need Jesus, the bread of life. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We'll talk about that scene in a minute. After his baptism, right now actually, <laughs> after his baptism, um, Jesus prepared to enter public ministry. 
And he went out into the desert, accompanied by the Spirit. His training regimen was very simple. Fasting. He's going to make himself hungry. That's going to help him in public ministry. Not just the hunger, not just the suffering, but um, fasting, yes, at, at, at the same time made him vulnerable to the devil's temptation, but for Jesus the Son, it strengthened his necessary dependence on the Father. That's why he fasted and quoted Deuteronomy. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's my sustenance. And it did sustain him, and it did give him the victory. In his book, uh, The Benedict Option, Rod Dreher writes this, Monks fast regularly, live simply, refuse comfort, and abide by the strict rules of the monastery. This is not a matter of earning spiritual merit. Rather, the monk knows the human heart and how its passions must be reined in through disciplined living. Asceticism is an antidote to the poison of self-centeredness common in our culture, which teaches us that satisfying our own desires is the key to the good life. A Christian who practices asceticism trains himself to say no to his desires and yes to God. And then Dreher asks this question. If I can't handle not eating for a few hours, how can I expect to control my more spiritual passions like anger, envy, and pride? When I read that a few weeks ago, I put the book down. I don't like the fast. I don't like bringing up fasting in sermons because that means I need to think about it more and likely I will fast more. I don't like that. But that made me put the book down and go, wow, undeniable. If I can't handle being hungry for a few hours, physical battle, how in the world do I think I'm going to battle the spiritual unseen dynamics of the heart? Learning the secret of being content in any and every situation, as Paul has, it is mostly learned in need, in hunger, in want. That's so very un-American because we can have all that we want, all that our hearts dream. Just work hard enough. The Bible says, not so fast. It's not the way to real flourishing. By the way, I'm not saying, and Paul's definitely not saying, that people in poverty automatically are more content, right? Because they're in need or they're in hunger. I'm not saying that. Paul's not saying that. Um, there's an understandable, sin-influenced desire of every human heart to have more, to satisfy, to experience pleasure. And by the way, this is a little tangent, but one of the saddest, most destructive aspects of the lottery, Powerball and Mega Millions, is that it preys on people who cannot afford what little money they have against crazy, foolish odds toward the fantasy of hitting it big. It's poor stewardship to begin with. It's not the way to handle the, the little money you may have. But even if you can afford to throw money away on lottery tickets, can I simply share a bit of advice with you? Maybe more of a plea. Don't 
participate in a system that allures and entraps people in their lust for wealth. No good comes out of it. Not even if you intend to give it away for good reasons. Should you be the one in a trillion lucky person? The reason Paul's words here are so very countercultural is that we free and prosperous Americans want what we want. In fact, we prefer that Philippians 4.13 say, I can do all things through me who strengthens me. Pat on the back. We'd rather be self-sufficient than God-dependent. We prefer the self-made millionaire story to anything that smacks of a handout or welfare or whatever you know, system that falls into um, the heart of the biblical Christian faith, which is grace, a gift to the undeserving. Do you see how countercultural this is, but how plain and simple it is before our very eyes and, and that the American way, you know, people say, oh, you're not being patriotic. No, 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 no. We, we need to be self-critical about everything because the American flag is not Jesus. It's not the cross. I, I, I love being an American. I love the freedoms that we have, but not everything in this country, the way it's going, matches up with biblical Christianity, Right? Longing for more is not the path of fulfillment, biblically speaking. That's just the truth, as God has revealed it to us. And just look around in a country that prides itself on self-sufficiency at the top of the heap worldwide, and it's easier and easier and increasingly painful to see where it's gotten us. The great Roman Empire fell. None of us is free of that risk. Uh, secondly, and we're going to close with this um, more briefly, the goodness of giving. Verses 14 and 19 get back to the context of the gifts sent by the Philippian church to Paul. This isn't the first time. Here's a, a little bit of a rewind in Paul's ministry. On his second missionary journey, he ended up in northern Macedonia, in Macedonia which is a modern northern uh, day modern-day northern Greece. And the first major city he ministered to is uh, Philippi. He met um, Lydia, a businesswoman, and her family, shared about Jesus. They placed their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and boom, church was planted. Uh, but a few weeks later, Paul gets thrown in prison, beaten, and then run out of town. Church plant, and he's out. And the next major city he ends up in, Acts chapter 17, is Thessalonica. And as he's ministering there, as we put that picture together with um, verse 16 here, we realize that the brand new Philippian church, Lydia and her family, and then the next circle out, converts to um, faith in Jesus, just weeks later are already sending support to Paul because he says, even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. They come to faith in Jesus, and then they want in on this, this mission to reach other people like they were lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a preacher, I don't go out of my way very often to talk about money and possessions as a topic, but based on how often Jesus addressed this topic in his ministry recorded in the gospels, 
I, I definitely should. Perhaps even to the point of neglect uh, of a very important topic. And, and admittedly, abuses by televangelists and megachurch leaders that make people cynical about any time a church brings up the, the topic of money and possessions makes, makes us a little skittish, right? You know, how are people going to perceive this? But that messiness, wherever you've heard of it or seen it, that messiness does not change the clearly biblical thinking that the way you handle your finances is directly connected to your trajectory of spiritual growth or lack thereof. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 8. This is a context we don't have time to unpack, but he's talking about um, the Macedonian churches and their extreme, uh, their generosity welling out of their extreme poverty. He's got to be talking about the Philippian church among other churches in that area. But this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Clearly, Paul is not talking about Jesus' bank account. Clearly, he's not promising riches of finances. But this picture is self-giving to the point of astounding, most costly sacrifice. This is God the Son giving of himself on the cross that you through his poverty might become rich. What was most valuable to Jesus? Not money in a bank account, not assets. What was most valuable to Jesus? His relationship with the Father enjoyed from all eternity past. And at the cross, in a moment that we cannot, we cannot even fathom, that perfect relationship from all eternity past was severed. It was broken. It was the hell of the cross. He gave everything to sinners like us that we might be saved. And so what's, what's most valuable to you? More likely, it's stuff. Maybe numbers on your statement. What's most valuable? Jesus, when he says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's why the way you handle your possessions and, and, and finances has a lot, maybe everything to do with your spiritual trajectory because that's where your heart is. And you cannot serve both God and money. That section of Matthew 6 ends. As you give treasure away, as you share generously and sacrificially, you walk in the Savior's footsteps. And here at the end of Philippians, paraphrasing, Paul would say to you, that is such a spiritually healthy thing for you to do. And in fact, God smells that offering and it smells heavenly to him. It's a fragrant offering. Verse 19 we close, and my God, Paul says, will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Does it hurt to radically give money away? Yes, but God in Christ has given you all things, and that is your satisfaction. This is the prescription at the heart of the gospel to break our heart attachments to treasure that will fade, that will be lost, that will be stolen, that cannot be taken with you. 
and to woo our hearts with a treasure that is all satisfying. This is the gospel according to Philippians. Let's pray. Lord, on a weekend when there are a lot of sales, a lot of ways to newly, supposedly satisfy ourselves, perhaps even the satisfaction of food and drink with a cookout and a party. Remind us, even as we clothe ourselves and buy school supplies that are necessary and fuel our bodies with food and drink, remind us powerfully that you alone are our satisfaction when we enjoy things. Show us the all-satisfying reality of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.